Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. If you want to follow along in your pew Bibles or just listen, either way is fine. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's do a quick prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would open the eyes of the blind. Lord, help us to see your word. Help me to speak it clearly. May you be glorified. May Jesus be made famous. In Jesus' name, amen. So the saying goes, seeing is believing. And our modern sensibility, that really jives well. We prefer hard evidence over hearsay. We want to see evidence from a good authority, or see it ourselves even better, before we believe anything, right? Um, I think that notion might be more of an exception to history than the rule. Uh, there's a, uh, another article in the New York Times with a very clever title. Even if you think discussing aliens is ridiculous, just hear me out. So I'd ask the same favor from you this morning. It's an article by Ezra Klein in the New York Times, and I'll, I'll quote it at length. But what it's about is it's prior to this uh, U.S. government report on UFO activity that they have seen the past several decades. And there was all this mystery and suspense as what was going to be in this report. And if it was true that aliens, there's evidence that aliens or some other beings were present in our universe, what would people think? What would people do? And so this article, he goes through uh, each sector of society and asks, how would it change that portion of society? And he asks that question about religion. And I'll quote him here. He says, There is a thick literature on how evidence of alien life would shake the world's religions. But I think Brother Guy Consolmagno, director of the Vatican Observatory, is quite likely right when he suggests that many people would simply say, in light of the evidence of UFOs or extraterrestrials, of course. The materialist worldview that positions humanity as an island of intelligence in a potentially empty cosmos, my worldview, in other words, speaking as Ezra Klein, uh, is the aberration. Most people believe and have always believed that we share both the earth and the cosmos with other beings, 
gods, spirits, angels, ghosts, ancestors. The norm throughout human history has been a crowded universe where other intelligences are interested in our comings and goings and even shape them. The whole of human civilization is testament to the fact that we can believe we are not alone and still obsess over earthly concerns." Unquote. So what Mr. Klein, a materialist, and what Brother Consolmagno, a Catholic, both observe is that belief is more natural to humanity, given the whole scope of human history, than disbelief. We are believing creatures with a penchant to believe in otherworldly realities, whether physical, sentient, spiritual, or both. We long to and do believe in a world that is unseen. And we tend to believe this even though we have not seen hard evidence in the 21st century. In the 21st century, I think belief is al as alive as ever. So, what do we believe in? That's the question. Do we believe in alien life? Do we believe in God, capital G? Do we believe in several gods or deities? Do we believe in the universe or just ourselves? This morning, this passage deals with a very specific and particular belief, belief in Jesus in a particular thing about Jesus. But does this belief in Jesus that all Christians would say they have, does it really matter? Does it make any difference in our world today? The passage is recounting the appearance of Jesus after his crucifixion, after his death and burial, where he appears to disciples and particularly Thomas. And his famous line, unless I see, I will not believe, is strikingly modern. I think we can all in some ways relate to Thomas. But let's enter into the narrative for a second in this first century uh, Palestinian context in order to understand where Thomas was coming from, and then we'll see how uh, it relates to us. So we're going to do this in three parts, not seeing and not believing is the first part. The second part is seeing and believing. And then lastly, the life of belief in sight. Once you've believed, what does that mean for your life? So first, not seeing and not believing. As Lara said, we are starting at the end of the Gospel of John. Uh, the story is well underway. In fact, we are at the climax of the entire story. Jesus is risen. He is no longer dead, even though so many had seen his public execution, his burial, in earlier verses, starting, if you want to read back, uh, 19 through 23 in that same chapter, there's also another locked room appearance of Jesus to other disciples when Thomas was not there. The locked room was because they were fearful of the Jews, the Jewish leaders of the day. They thought they could either be arrested or even killed or at least hurt because of their faith or because they were followers of Jesus. So they locked their doors. This was a secret meeting. I just want to read uh, 19 through 20. It says that Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. 
So if you even read back earlier, a few of the disciples, when they came to the tomb and saw it empty, it says that they believed. But then they're, you know, they're, they're 11 at this point, right? A few of the other disciples saw Jesus in this, uh, this locked room, and they were glad that they saw him, and they believed. But it wasn't all of the disciples. We know that Thomas was not with them. Um, he's called Doubting Thomas in history. That doesn't show up even in the, the headline of the, the ESV version. I think it's a rather unfortunate nickname that he has. His actual nickname is The Twin, uh, which may be equally diminutive. He's, he's the other guy, the other one. You know, maybe his brother or his sister has a name and everybody knows them, but he's the twin. He's the other one. Um, but he's become to be known this, this kind of the ultimate skeptic, the ultimate doubter. And I, I want to maybe try to uh, dissuade you of that kind of preconceived notion that Thomas is completely in the wrong here, that Thomas maybe is uh, more like us than maybe we want to admit. He didn't have the same experience that the other disciples had had. And what he asked for is the exact same thing that the other disciples had seen, the marks in Jesus' hands and the wound in his side. He's not asking for anything beyond that. He wasn't there in the first instance and says, well, I need to see it a second time because I wasn't sure about the first time. No, he asked for the exact same evidence. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the, the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I think uh, the, the ESV says never. A lot of other translations say not believe. Never say never, right? But why did Thomas disbelieve? He'd not seen Jesus. He'd not seen him. If he was supposedly alive when he was once dead, well, he had not seen him. And this raises the question, was Thomas in the wrong for not believing at this point? Was this some sort of error or sin on his part to not believe? Maybe it raises a larger question. What about those who've never heard the gospel? What about those who've never seen Jesus? Is anyone at fault for merely not seeing or not receiving faith from the Holy Spirit? Our time, unfortunately, doesn't allow a full exploration of these questions, but bear with me as we go through. I think we see something. And the first thing we see is that Jesus did come to Thomas the disbeliever. In one sense, Thomas asks, and he receives. And later on, we will see that Jesus has a plan for all those who will believe. He has a plan for how they will see through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. I think we must be careful here to distinguish between doubt that prevents belief prior to belief or faith in Jesus, and doubt in the midst of belief. I think uh, 
Lord, I believe, help my unbelief is such a helpful uh, verse here. If you have questions and doubts and you are a Christian, maybe the very fact that you have those questions and doubts is making you doubt whether or not you are a Christian. Friends, there are so many other believers, even heroes of the faith, just like you. If you read Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of faith, Gideon shows up. If you remember, Gideon was the the ultimate doubter, kind of the the, the pre-Thomas doubting Gideon, right? He needed these signs, and not just one sign, but several over and over again before he believed. Young Samuel needed confirmation that he was indeed hearing the voice of God. Peter thought he had got it all wrong uh, when he denied Jesus. There are countless examples all throughout Christian history of timid people, of skeptical people, of pessimistic people, of empirically oriented people, like maybe some of you, who are people of deep faith. So don't lose heart. If you have questions, Thomas did too. Let's turn to now Thomas's seeing and believing Jesus. So it's only eight days after this first encounter in the locked room that uh, in verses 26 through 27, we see that Jesus came again and stood among them and the room was locked and he said, peace be with you. Sounds familiar. Then he said to Thomas, he directs his attention to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That last line is maybe the one difference that's important to see in this instance versus the prior one. But we aren't told that Thomas takes his hands and touches Jesus. It doesn't even say that he actually did what Jesus was inviting him to do. All it says is that Thomas says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and and my God. Christianity at its core is belief in Jesus as the Son of God. Now, interestingly, not that many seem to object to that uh, today. The, The most often I heard people object to that was when I was ministering in a Muslim context. There, in the Muslim tradition or religion, it's blasphemous to say that Jesus is God's son. And so too, in a, in a Jewish system of belief, it's blasphemous to believe that Jesus is the son of God. Today, I minister in a, a more secular context here in the, in the U.S. And if I tell somebody, hey, guess what? Jesus is the son of God. I'll be like, great, good, good for you. What, is that, what difference does that make? So what? But Thomas's exclamation, my Lord and my God, there's something really important to see here. God in Greek is theos. And this is really rare in the New Testament in conjunction with Jesus. And the Gospel of John, especially John 1 and then here in John 20, are where you see the most clear conjunction or joining of Jesus and God. 
Back in John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse uh, 18 of chapter 1, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. No one has ever seen God, but now God has made Thomas see Jesus, the Son of God. The Trinity hadn't been made up yet. (laughs) The Trinity wasn't a thing. This is a remarkable thing to say that Jesus, the incarnate Word, is God. To believe in Jesus is to believe not that Jesus was an historical person, that he walked the earth, that he was a good teacher, but it is to believe that Jesus is God. That's what we believe. Not just anything, but that. It's to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Lord sent from heaven. It's to believe that Jesus is the Word that was with God in the beginning, the very beginning of all creation. It's to believe that Jesus and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are triune. They are one. So what? You might still be asking. I think even today, a sense of Something other than just us existing still is, is there. And I think you, I think you see that um, maybe mostly in this sense that we all have that one day the other shoe is going to drop. That one day all will have to give an account. That our longing for justice means something. That it matters. That one day God will come back. I think we have a sense of that in all of us. I think that we all know that there's something after death when it comes down to it. These questions of justice, of accountability, and of what is after death still haunt us today in a post-Christian world. So to believe that Jesus is the Son of God means that God has made a relationship happen with His people. He has sent His Son to cover their sin so that they can be justified before Him, so that that cosmic other shoe dropping, it's already dropped, and it's dropped on Golgotha in the crucifixion. That Jesus has made a once and for all declaration that you are not guilty because of Jesus. And that can be true personally and spiritually for us as much as it was for Thomas. I want to bring to light that this was a personal and spiritual encounter for Thomas. It wasn't merely a sensory or physical one. Jesus knew that Thomas had said those words unless I touch Jesus in his wounds and he wasn't in the room. He's God. He was aware of Thomas. He was aware of Thomas's heart and his doubts 
and his words. And he says, here, Thomas, this is what you asked for. I'm here. It's me. This is an intimate encounter. It's not individual or private. We know that there are other people involved and that Thomas had already heard the testimony of others, but it is particular and personal to Thomas in this case. What does this have to do with us? Well, it goes on. Jesus says, um, after Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God, Thomas, or Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Well, as, as Lara already mentioned, this is you and me. And this is all those, even after Jesus ascended to the Father, that believed. And there are thousands of them. That we have not looked in the face of Jesus with our physical eyes, have we not seen the one who is our Lord and God with the eyes of our hearts? That we have not touched the hand, touched the hands of Jesus where he has those wounds of the nails as he was hung to the cross. By faith, we know that that blood that flowed from those wounds was shed for us, and it covers our sin. It can be personal and spiritual and particular for you and me here today, as it always has been. Jesus is alive, and we know him to be alive because his spirit gives us eyes to see that. His Spirit is alive in us. And this is true for all who believe. So, the third point, the life of belief and sight. So once we have our eyes opened, the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our spirits opened to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, what does that mean for our lives? we have this uh, encounter with Thomas and Jesus kind of teeing up this great statement that you wish every single book had. This is the purpose of this book, <laughs> just in case you're wondering. And it's in verse 30 and 31. These are written, these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He was not just writing John to Jews. This was not just limited to a certain people, but it was meant to be spread and translated and proliferated all around the globe ever since Jesus left the earth. So you, you, you might at this point say, like, you know, is this kind of some second-rate method of evangelism? Is this kind of second-rate um, faith? that Thomas and the disciples and anyone who was an eyewitness of Jesus, they had first-rate, first-hand encounter, but we have second-rate. Is it like um, you get a t-shirt from someone who went somewhere and it says, my friend went to London and all I got was this lousy t-shirt? Are, are we as Christians today just saying like, hey, like, I know some other people saw Jesus. All I got, well, it's kind of this weak, mediocre faith that kind of stumble along probably know that I'm about to say, no, that's not the way it is. 
we have the same spirit. And how many of us, if we saw Jesus, would still not believe? How many of us, if we saw alien life, we would still not believe? Seeing is not enough. The eyes of our hearts have to be opened. And how does he do this? He does it through the Spirit and the Word together. Theologians in the Reformed tradition uh, have this thing called the sufficiency of Scripture. And I think it's a helpful concept to consider here. John is saying that in God's infinite wisdom, believers post-Thomas, if you will, will be equipped with the words of God. And that they will be given the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit will work through those words as they are read, as they are preached, as they are understood to bring the same kind of faith that Thomas had. It is not enough or sufficient in the sense that we still long to see Jesus face to face. Right? We still long for that physical embodied encounter with our risen Lord. But it is enough in the sense that we can have salvation and we can have knowledge and assurance of Jesus dying and rising for us here today. It is sufficient. The Word of God is sufficient for faith. It's enough. This is not second rate. And it's sufficient so that the Word of God may be proclaimed in the entire world. It's not just sufficient for one culture, for one place. It's sufficient for every culture and for every place. In the earlier verses, this first encounter with the disciples, something very important happens. And I think these two things kind of go hand in hand. Um, in verse 22, it says that Jesus breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus is sending these disciples, these first missionaries, with the Holy Spirit, but not just the Holy Spirit in their own voices, but with the testimony, with the gospel that John is writing, every other gospel, and in fact, the entire scriptures, the entire Word of God. These two things, hand in hand, are enough. This is why we do what we do every Sunday. This is why we have Bibles and we read them. This is why the Word of God is, is preached. This is why it's memorized. This is why we sing, and often it's from the Psalter. The Bible is central. Why? Because it contains the words of life. It's not just any book. The Holy Spirit works in it in a way that he doesn't in any other so we should be people of the book. We should read it, whether in private or together. We should study it, memorize it, weave it into conversations. We should share what we've learned from it with other people. It is the revelation of God. It is not God, but it reveals 
God. And apart from this revelation, there is no salvation. I want to go back to something I said earlier, that it's not enough in the sense that we still long. We still long to see Jesus like Thomas did. That's the other part of the story, right? Where faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then in another place, in 2 Corinthians, it says we walk by faith, not by sight. But in 1 John, it says when Jesus appears, that we will see him as he is. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says that now we see in a mirror dimly. Now our faith is sometimes weak and failing. Now our sight is dull. But one day we will see Jesus, the risen Lord, in our resurrected bodies, materially. We will see him face to face. So we are within the sandwich between this eyewitness testimony of Jesus when he was first on earth and this hope and this assurance and this faith that one day we will see him again. And in that sense, it's not enough. We're still waiting. We still want to see our Savior face to face. I think we are all wanting assurance. We want this evidence before us. So there's no doubt. We all seek to see, we all long to believe with purity and with conviction. And the problem is, is we're still wrapped up in belief in false gods and in false lords and believing in false selves. Jesus alone is God. He is God. Let the Holy Spirit open the eyes of many so that we may have life in his name. Father, we just ask that you would do that, that you would open our eyes, that those who may be in this room have not believed, that you would allow them to believe by your Spirit in a personal and particular way. Lord, we pray that the gospel would be preached around the world and that you would come quickly so that we may see you face to face. In Jesus' name. Amen.